Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. father, your husband, the film. I feel so sad that he's not here to learn with us tonight. He sounds like he would have been a very excellent chavruta, a study partner. Uh, you know, I, uh, I teach in George Washington University and I often take walks with my colleagues or students to the Lincoln Memorial or the Vietnam Memorial, which are only a few blocks away. And I often ponder the fact that when we think about memorials, we think about granite, and engraving and bricks and some building of dignity. But even buildings of granite and marble crumble. For Jews, we memorialize people through study and it has served us for thousands of years as a Lincoln tradition. So I'm, I'm really honored to stand here tonight. I didn't realize that one of our tasks was gonna to be to rename the rabbi but I, I think we should, I think we should uh, you know, move towards that challenge. Is that all right with you? Okay, it's Elul, you know, we're new, new people, really. A Balchuba is a new person. And what I want to do with you tonight, and I'm not gonna do this work myself, in fact, you're gonna do the hardest work. You probably didn't sign up for that, but tough. Um, so what we're gonna do tonight is, I want, first wanna make sure everyone has a handout. But what I want to do this evening is talk about forms of Jewish identity. We do a lot of thinking uh, from an educational point of view and a religious and philosophical point of view about the nature of identity, the nature of identity. And in fact, I'm interested right now in how the digital world, the social media world, is also changing our perceptions of personal identity. But for tonight, we're going to work on Jewish identity. So what I'd like you to do is indulge me. There's nothing worse than telling adults that they have a quiz, except if you tell them they have a test. So this is a quiz, but it's not really a quiz. No one's grading you. But what I'd like to do is I want to give you two minutes, and you can either think about this or write this. If you have a pen, I'd love you to write it. I want you to think about the influences on your identity. We're going to link this in to the season of Elul, of Tshuva, of, of Return. In order to do that, I want you to give me this time. Think about what has influenced you most in the identity you have now. Parents or guardians, your partner, your work, your education, your siblings, friends, neighborhood, volunteer activities, birthplace, hometown, race, religion, citizenship, or maybe there's a significant life event which was transformative for you, which I haven't listed. So I'm going to actually give you, wait, we, we need some handouts over here, yes? Okay. You're going to be sorry. All right. But um, so what we're going to do now is I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to give you two minutes. If you have, you have 100 points and you have to divide them up, 
I know we're not all accountants, but you're gonna have to count them up. I want you to think as a percent. You don't have to, you can have categories that have nothing, and you can have categories that have 50 or 75%, but they've gotta add up to 100%, all right? So we're gonna start that right now. All right, I know you might not have finished. Was this easy or hard? Hard, it's really, really hard. That's why I asked you to do it, and I didn't do it at all. No, I, I do my own homework usually. Um, so, what was hard about it? You didn't have a lot of time. You had a lot of categories. And with each category, you might have said, when you got to the next one, oh, I didn't realize that this category was important. So you're shifting things around. Anybody have a category that was more than 50% or 50%? Okay, would you like to tell me what that was? Your birthplace, where were you born? New York City. New York City. Anyone else say birthplace? New York. New York, okay. So this is interesting because I've done this many, many times and there are two communities, two places, two locales where people say it's more than 50%. One of them is New Yorkers. Sometimes they're unbearable. Um, because of this, and the other one are Israelis. Um, that, that seems to rise to the top as, as places, there's some geographic, it's, not, it's beyond geographic, it transcends geography, that's, there's something about the feel of the place that contributes. And there are people, by the way, who leave New York, and they, they were New Yorkers till the age of three, and they, they're still consider themselves New Yorkers. So it's interesting, there's a certain mindset. Anyone else have something above 50%? Yes, and what do you have? Uh, significant life event. Significant life event. I'm not gonna ask you what that is unless you wanna volunteer. Uh, my father passed away at 46. Yeah. So, death of a parent, death of a spouse, death of a sibling, could just shatter a world. It can change a world. So thank you for sharing that. May his memory be for a blessing. Someone else. Yes, please. Chauffeur blowing rabbi. Religion. Religion. Okay. Anyone else put religion as a big category? Okay. Yeah? Religion? All right. Anything else? What? I can't. Not over 50%, but a high category. Is there anything you said, you know, this hasn't influenced me at all? Yeah, a lot of them? Ricky, you were shaking your head. What, what wasn't there? Don't say Pam, she's sitting right next to you. <laughs> Birthplace. Birthplace, yeah. It's interesting, for some people it's so significant, for other people it isn't. Race is very significant for some people, and for some people it isn't. Yes, sir? Holocaust. Holocaust, so you wanna put that as a separate event, a transformative event. And so it's, it's very interesting that you said that. What's your name? Barry. Barry. Um, thank you for having a, a good, clear voice. So uh, Stephen Cohen, Stephen M. Cohen, who's a preeminent Jewish sociologist, did a study called The Tale of Two Juries. It, was, it came out several years ago, maybe in, maybe in 2002 or 2006. And what he did is he, he studied at that time and said, if you're under 44, the Holocaust and the birth of the State of Israel are not significant identity shapers. 
which is shocking, right? I'm, I'm, the, I'm the second generation. I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. My grandparents were survivors. And my whole life was Israel and the Holocaust. I would say the Holocaust more than Israel. But all of a sudden, we in the Jewish community have to prepare ourselves for emerging leaders for whom this is not influential. And it's getting less influential with each passing year. So you might be saying, why are you doing this with me, Erica? It's torture. And I'm doing it for a particular reason. Let's look at question one. 10 years from now, what factors may be added or dropped in the identity equation for you? You don't have to circle them, but tell me them. What could change for you that might shift your identity? Life event. You might move. You might retire. You might get a new job. All things that could happen. What else? You can have a medical situation. You or someone you love. You become a caretaker. Caretaking identity is exhaustive. It's hard. I imagine. How many of you, by a show of hands, are right now in a caretaking position? Okay. I know that not all of you are being honest with me, and that's okay. Because uh, I know many of you are doing this, and it's a very vulnerable state, and it's very demanding. And I just want to give you a special blessing. I wish we had a special prayer for caregivers. Let's go write that, because people need to feel the strength and the patience to do one of the world's hardest and most important jobs. And thank you for doing it. So what else could change? Lots of things could change. And I say that because we tended to view identity, and Jewish identity in particular, as something relatively static. You were born into a family, they had certain kinds of commitments, you either decided to accept them and continue them or reject them. But what we really know about the psychology of identity and the philosophy of identity, people were studying this philosophically, is that identity is malleable, it is fluid, it doesn't stay the same. For many people this is very frightening, but in the season of Elul, in the season of Tshuva, it's actually quite reassuring that we can actually change ourselves and that there are factors, outside factors, which can make us different than we are. So I want to introduce a term, two terms, that were introduced first by the, by the um, anthropologist Clifford Goetz and then adapted by Michael Walters, a political scientist. He talked about identity as thin and thick, a thin identity and a thick identity. A thin identity is an identity you have, and you may take it very seriously, and you may feel it's actually inherent, but then some years later, it goes away. Can anyone think of a thin identity? Something you were really passionate about, or you're really committed to, and you really thought this is what you're going to do, or be, or live, and then you let it go. Yeah, please. A job. A job. For a lot of people, professionally, they take on a career and they think, this is my entirety of being. And by the way, when those people retire, it's bad news. On the identity front, it can be collapsing and depressing. What else? Yeah, please. Being a wife and changing, right? changing that status. Or being a husband, right? Divorce is a huge identity-shaping experience, um, emotionally, in terms of the family structure and dynamic, financially, especially for women. Um, what else? Yeah. Peace in our country and the world. So that, I don't know, if, do you think that's a thin identity? I mean a personal identity. Right. And now 
So that Jewish identity might be very thick rather than thin. And as when you're describing that every day you think about it, I do want to make sure that we are a bipartisan room um, in here, that we're safe in talking about identity. Um, I know that a lot of us have feelings. I'm certainly happy to talk about them afterwards. So the idea of the thin identity, I'm going to give you a thin identity. Or actually, I'm going to ask you, how many of you are Thick sports fans, which means no matter where you live, you are going to support your team. Thick sports fans. Okay, a few of you, a few of you. Some of you are very enthusiastic, you're raising your hands very high. I don't know what your team is. My guess is it might be the Patriots. I don't know. Red Sox. Red Sox. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Who's in the back over there? You're waving your hands. What's your team? The Patriots, right? Okay. So I lived in Boston for six years. My son had, uh, until he was actually in his 20s, Red Sox wallpaper. So that's a pretty big idea. But I am not, uh, I'm not an athlete. I was in the nerd group and uh, in school. The other people who were the homecoming queens, but that wasn't me. And so I will vote, I will support, I will root for whatever team my kids particularly care for. But it really doesn't mean that much to me. I have a thin identity when it comes to sports. And I'll give you another, I, I was a vegetarian for quite a while, 16 years. How many of you were vegetarians? Okay. All right, so I know we all fessing up, and now we feel bad about it, and now we're gonna have another vegan burger. Okay, good. But, you know, that was a very important part of my identity, but it didn't last for a variety of reasons. I'll tell you an identity for me that was very thin, carpool. <laughs> I wanna tell you, that I carpooled for over 20 years. And for a long time, anyone I looked at in school, I had one set of eyes. Do you have a Honda Odyssey eight-seater? <laughs> if you did not have a Honda Odyssey eight-seater, I was honestly, I was not gonna be your friend. I wasn't gonna pretend that I was gonna be your friend because I just didn't have time for you. Carpool for a working woman is a very important role. But when I stopped driving carpool, it was one of my happiest days. <laughs> So that identity, I said, shalom, velol hitro. We're not seeing you later. And I haven't driven a carpool since. Unless you have driven a sixth grade boys basketball carpool, you do not really understand what I mean. After the game, after the game. Uh, so thin identities are interesting to me because when we're in them, sometimes we're so into them. Camp. Who here has a thin camp identity? You went to camp for a few years. Yeah, no, uh, not a lot of campers here? No, Phoenix, you don't know? Okay, so you're campers. But it's not necessarily like, any thick, thick campers? Right, oh, look at you. What camp did you go to? Uh, I just want to say Havdala by the lake with you. I could see you so excited. So it's funny, I have a friend, he's close to 60 years old. When he goes to a certain city where a lot of his fellow campers are, he asks his wife in synagogue, can I sit with my bunk? <laughs> Is that normal? It's like, that's a thin identity. You're like, you're out of camera. So there's thin identities and thick identities. And what I want to study for a moment are perceptions of identity that are Jewish in terms of thin and thick identities. So let's talk a little bit about thick identities. What's an identity for you? We talked about sports, we talked about camp, but really, who you are, and no matter where you are in your life, in the world, this is who you are. Yes? Go ahead. Helping people. Helping people. 
You're a person of public service, and no matter where you are, you find yourself doing it. How many people would say that's pretty true for you? Right. Sometimes we actually don't want it to always be true for you because you feel exhausted or drained, but you know, but but it's who we are. Yes. A Jewish woman. Yeah, and so it's interesting because some of the identities that we have are really, I call them vertical identities as opposed to horizontal identities. Horizontal identity, I'm a guitar playing chess uh, master who also does X, right? That's, you know, there's a lot of things and they seem to be on the same level. But when you have a vertical identity, there's certain things that rise to the top. So being Jewish might be one of them. Being a parent is a thick identity. Being a, a spouse for some people is a thick identity, for others, not so much, right? No, it's, so it's, it's interesting, to, depending on your relationship, what are identities that are deep and thick for you? Now let's turn to the, yes, please. Uh, the Jewish community is very thick for me. Mm. I've been fortunate enough to live here almost all of my life. And I've been very Yeah, and so that sense of Jewish commitment, and in fact, we're very lucky. We're very lucky. Not everyone can pick up and move and create a community who's anxious to embrace you, right? wants to see you, a new member, and then within six months, you're the president of the synagogue. <laughs> it happens. Fresh blood. Um, So I want to turn the page with you, please. And I want to look at some identities. You tell me thick or thin. So the first is Leon Wieseltier, who used to be the literary editor of The New Republic and a, and a personal friend. He was interviewed by Abigail Pogrebin. We're now in the middle of page two. In her book, Stars of David, prominent Jews talk about being Jewish, which is actually a super fascinating book, right? how certain people of note, celebrities, writers, thinkers, how they think of their Jewish identities. So he says that being Jewish is not like other identities, and perhaps there's a relief in allowing it to be different. So here he describes it. I think to be Jewish is not to be an American or a Westerner or a New Yorker. To be a Jew is to be a Jew. It's its own thing, its own category, its own autonomous way of moving through the world it's ancient and thick and vast, and it's one specific thing that is not like anything else. Agree or disagree? Now, when you read this, you go, when I read this for the first time, I said, that is totally true. It's not like other identities. I don't even know how to explain it. It's the way I look in the world. And then I thought about other identities, which are also ancient and thick and vast. Give me an ancient, thick, and vast identity. Gender. Gender. Race. Color. Um, a thick identity might be being a Buddhist, being a Christian. So although he hits on something that's important that seems to be expressive of a thick identity, it's not exclusively thick. Right? It's something that we might share with others who also are part of an ancient people. Now, being part of an ancient people is demanding because sometimes people don't want to walk around with 4,000 years of history. 
They just don't want to walk that way. Philip Roth talks about an operation Shylock. He talks about like within every Jew, there's the rascal Jew, there's the good Jew, there's the bacon loving Jew, there's the, the historical Jew, there's, you know, there's the rebellious. You know, we're we're fighting. He says all this is taking place in one person. When you have an ancient tradition, you there's, there's a weight on your shoulders. There's a way that you walk in the world. There's a sense of responsibility, and it may not be a sense of responsibility that you particularly care for, but it's there. So now I want to read something by Tony Judd. Tony Judd uh, was a public intellectual. Uh, actually, he's an Englishman of origin, by origin, and he, I think at 17, went to work in kibbutz in Israel. Uh, but he became a very, he became a, a great critic of Israel. He wrote a lot in the New York Review of Books. Uh, he passed away some years ago. And this is what he said about his Jewish identity in 2010. So that's your second quote. I participate in no Jewish community life, nor do I practice Jewish rituals. I don't make a point of socializing with Jews in particular, and for the most part, I haven't married them. <laughs> Is that not the most hysterical thing you've read all day? <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Um, I, just, I just was beside myself when I'm there. I am not a lapsed Jew, having never confirmed to requirements in the first place. I don't love Israel. I don't care if the sentiment is reciprocated. But whenever anyone asks me whether or not I'm Jewish, I unhesitatingly respond in the affirmative and would be ashamed to do otherwise. What do you think? Thick, thin? Conflicted. Conflicted. All right, so let's do a show of hands. How many people say thick? How many people say thin? All right, it's just Barry and I. Um, no. Um, it's interesting because a lot of people say that he didn't say that he's, he would never lie about being Jewish. And I say because he's not a liar. But he basically is taking himself out of every card-carrying role. It was whether it's the religious or the socializing or, or being with, uh, with uh, you know, being associated with Israel. There's nothing that he feels he needs to do to conform. And there's no commitment expressed here other than the fact that he says, I'm Jewish. So I might say to you, I have blue eyes, or I, or I, I have four children. I might say that, or more importantly, I have two grandchildren, and I will show pictures afterwards. Um, but the thick identity part of this is really beguiling. Um, and and, I, and I, I feel that there is some level of conflict here, but it is very vastly different than the first description that we read. I want to read one more description. Uh, and I love this description. It's from A.B. Yoshua's novel, Friendly Fire. And he has a character, Yermiel. He's a central character. Yermiel's wife dies of cancer. He's, he lives in Israel. His wife dies of cancer. His son dies in a friendly fire incident in the IDF, in the, in the Tzavad Israeli army. And what Yermiel does is he says, I've had enough of this. And he goes to move to the heart of Africa in Tanzania. So he's trying to run away. And the reason, one of the reasons that I love this story is that I wrote a book on Jonah, so I'm very familiar with escape artists. Right? People who think they can run away from something, when they can't, in fact, run away. Because there's a lot of forces that are pulling you back even when you don't recognize those forces. So his sister-in-law, sister Daniela, wants to connect with him. She goes to Africa from Israel. And like every good Israeli before the internet, she brings a pile of Israeli newspapers and a box of Hanukkah candles, which is just a nice gift. And he takes the gift from her and he throws it instantly into the fire. 
So she knows there's something here that has to be mine. So I want you to hear the speech that Yirmiyahu gives to Daniela. So on page three. And you tell me how you want to describe this. Here there are no ancient graves and no floor tiles from a destroyed synagogue. No museum with a fragment of a burnt Torah. No testimonies about pogroms and the Holocaust. There's no exile here, no diaspora. There was no golden age here, no community that contributed to global culture. They don't fuss about assimilation or extinction, self-hatred or pride, uniqueness or chosenness. No old grandmas pop up suddenly aware of their identity. There's no orthodoxy here or secularism or self-indulgent religiosity. And most of all, no nostalgia for anything at all. There's no struggle between tradition and revolution, no rebellion against the forefathers or known interpretations. No one feels compelled to decide is he a Jew or an Israeli or maybe a Canaanite or if the state is more democratic or more Jewish, if there's hope for it or if it's done for it. The people around me are free and clear of that whole exhausting and confusing tangle. But life goes on. I'm 70 years old, Daniela, and I'm committed to let go. Wow. Now he claims that he's somewhere where there's no nostalgia. Is that true? There's, there's a history, there's new interpretations, there's tribal factions, but for him, they're not his. They're African factions, he doesn't have to worry about them. What do you think this man is suffering from? Broken heart. He's grieving. There's a lot of loss here of who he is, and the world that has collapsed and shattered under his feet. I call this identity fatigue. And I've seen this and diagnosed it. A lot of people, they're just kind of tired of talking about the, the dimensions of identity. Now, is an angry identity a thick or thin identity? Oh, it's thick, it's maybe the thickest there is. I don't know how many of you have read some of the memoirs of ultra-Orthodox Jews who have left. Or for that matter, how many of you read Tara Westover's Educated? Or you've read um, Ira Wackler's book about leaving the Amish country. Or Karen Armstrong's book called Through the Narrow Gate about leaving a convent. These are thick identities. These are people who made deep commitments, and when they left those commitments, they had no foundation. There was no new world to replace it. And so if you read um, Shulam Dean's wonderful and very painful book, All Who Go Do Not Return, he has five children, he has a wife, he's called into the baked in of his small Hasidic community, he's excommunicated, and he makes his way into another life. He, there's one scene where he's sitting in a library in Rockland County, New York, in the children's section, in a children's seat. And he thinks to himself, because he has not been college educated, that if he reads an entire children's encyclopedia, he's gonna catch up with everything he didn't know. That's how little he knew about the world. And I'm intrigued by, again, identity shifts, and identities which hold us and which take so much for us to let go of. Now, I was privileged in my own lifetime have Judaism be a very thin identity that became a very, very thick identity. And I want to tell you a little bit about that journey.
darkness of the Holocaust experience. That was Judaism for my grandparents and largely for my mother, although she was much more silent about it as a child survivor. She didn't have the memories, she just carried the hollowness and the pain. And I remember every Passover Seder was started out joyful and then became a torment. Because it started off with the wonderful songs of my Zadie of Blessed Memory, you know, always let the savory garbled a lot, but you know, it was just my grandmother made beautiful food. But around the middle of the Seder, they said, why are we reading this story? But we always said, why are we reading this story? We should talk about our story. So the Seder always became, and many ho holidays became an opportunity to in some way talk or mourn about the Holocaust. And for me, this was a burden that I didn't necessarily want to bear. I understood it, I studied it, it was important, but it made all of Judaism somewhat black. I was a nerdy kid, and I've already mentioned this, so getting that identity problem out right in the open. I went to the world's worst Hebrew school. I might have contenders in this audience for that award. I want to just tell you that I excelled in that Hebrew school. I read, I said the Shema, the first paragraph of the Shema in 45 seconds, which was quicker than anyone said it, and I won the junior Jewish encyclopedia. And I learned that the importance of praying is doing it quickly. Anyway, in fourth grade, uh, a friend, in our small Hebrew school asked me to go to a Shabbaton, the NCSY Shabbaton. And I figured, you know, I don't have a lot of friends, I'm kind of new here. I went on the Shabbaton and I saw people had a totally different Judaism. There was guitar playing and there was singing and there was meaning and there was observance and there was community. My parents had a bad marriage and, and a divorce. And I saw this path and it was this incredible path, but it required a lot of commitment. And so at, at 11 and 12, I became a vegetarian. I didn't want to eat uh, unkosher food. I remember keeping a Shabbat in my bedroom, and it was so hard, so hard by yourself. And I remember teaching myself to pray and how hard that was. And I, had, uh, I went to a high school, uh, kind of a fancy prep school, where I had to had exams in ballroom dancing. And the headmaster said I had a very good rumba, I'm just saying. This is true, I'm not telling you any, I'm telling you the only truth tonight. And um, I went to this school, I got a merit scholarship, and by the, the first year, I had to go on the holidays. There was no exemption, religious exemption, and you could lose your scholarship if you took off for any reason. And the second year, I said, I can't go to school on Yom Kippur. I can't go to school on Rosh Hashanah. I can't go to school on Sukkot. I'm in. But the school wasn't so happy with that, and so I lost my scholarship. It would not happen today, but it happened then, a long time ago. And I went to see schools, to see Jewish schools a little way from home, to have a Jewish education with junior and senior year. I will never forget this moment. I took a train myself to New York, I must have been 15 or 16, and I went into the halls of the school. The principal yelled at me for being late, although I was only a student in the school. They told me to take a test in English, it was fine, it was fine. And then they told me to take a test in Hebrew. I said, I, I, don't, I don't speak Hebrew, I cannot take this test. I really, I, I, could, I could only write rudimentary letters. And, uh, and they sat me in a room, they told me you have to take this test. And I sat for 45 minutes, I wrote in big letters, Rivka, 
And that's all I put in my paper. And I thought to myself, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? I wanted this thick identity, and it didn't want me. I didn't get into the school, which is no surprise. But I did go to a wonderful day school. I went to the Frisch, uh, Frisch Yeshiva in Paramus, and uh, it was a very embracing and loving community. And from there, I went to Israel, I went to Yeshiva University, and I continued in Jewish studies, and uh, it's taken me to where I am today. And I, I know that the transition between thin and thick identities, sometimes it's just the slightest small thing that determines it. Because someone says, light Shabbat candles with me. Because someone says, come sit at my chicken soup, join me for a Shabbat meal. It's not always about God, although sometimes it's profoundly about God. Sometimes it's just being in the presence of the love and the warmth. And what I want to say to you is that we are all thickening agents of Judaism. That every one of us in this room has a chance to touch someone else's Jewish life by inviting them in. And that's our, really, that's our responsibility. Because I wouldn't be here had someone else not said, here's a set of Shabbat candles. Will you come with me to Shabbat's home? Can I, can, will you come for dinner? And all of a sudden, all that love, which I didn't see around me so much, not in school, I felt in that, in that presence of community. I want to introduce three frameworks that are important for thick identity, and they're on the bottom of page three. There's behavioral, what we call them the ABCs of identity, behavioral, the effective behavioral and cognitive, meaning what you do, what you feel, and what you think. So I'm not gonna ask you to do this on a piece of paper, but I want some of you to help me on the affective. Give me an emotion you associate with Judaism. It doesn't have to be positive necessarily, although I'd love it to be. Prime. Guilt. Guilt. Amen. Joy. Tzedakah. Well, that's not an emotion, but you might feel charitable. Being charitable is an emotion, right? Tzedkut or piety. Pride. Pride. We had pride. Yeah. But I'm glad we have more pride. Kindness. Belonging. Yeah, please. Love. What I learned in my own journey was that you cannot bring people closer to Judaism through the horrible histories that we've had and the horrible incidents of history. And what I see in every major American city right now is when people are given money to showcase Judaism, they build a Holocaust memorial. I'm not denying that. That is deep in my life and my psyche. But if that's what we're showcasing, and not the joy, and not the love, and not the pride, then we made a huge mistake. I see in front of Torahs that there's often the, the parochet, often there's a, a, a Holocaust tour, or there's a, candles, or there's something. It's almost a part of, and I understand because it's so close to us and intimate. And at the same time, we need something that's livelier and vibrant and vital, and that's different. So, how about the behavior, what you do? Give me some Jewish behaviors. Pray. Pray. Observe Shabbat. Study. Study. What? Donating. 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 Right. Okay. Donating. Asking questions. Beautiful. What? Volunteer. You are smoking tonight. Okay. Volunteering. Right. What else? 
Going to shivas, right? Because there's so many things that we do that represent our Judaism. What about cognitive? What you think? This, this is a character of, of learning, right? Of going to classes, of reading, of, of, of books that you buy. I'm kind of astounded. I go to many Jewish homes to teach, and sometimes there's no Jewish books, and sometimes there's no books at all. So you're the people of the book. What book are you talking about? What, what is our library? What does the Jewish library look like in our own homes? And how do we think we're going to pass this on to another generation? Because it's very hard for a thin generation to pass on thinness. It's hard for a thin generation to pass on thinness. All right, so what do you think? What are you doing? Going to class? Celebrating. What are you reading, though? I'm talking about thinking. Oh, please. Thank you. I just want to report on my royalties, because I do get royalty checks every quarter, that I made eight cents on one of my books. The publisher will not give you a check until you get to $100, so I told my kids, in the fullness of time, they should split it into four. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for the plug. Now, why I say this is because the ABCs of identity, the affective, the behavioral, and the cognitive, right? So what we do, what we think, what we feel, are important to in, in integrating for a thick identity. Oftentimes, you'll find that people feel deeply Jewish, but they don't do anything Jewish. And they don't think about Judaism, right? I'll give you an example. As a parent, when you're a parent, uh, there are times in your life when you're doing feeling and thinking, right? You're doing, you're driving that carpool. You're thinking, you know, your kid is uh, jealous of another kid, so you're reading, you know, all these different books about uh, children and siblings and sibling rivalry, and, and you're, you're feeling, you're feeling pride, you're feeling, a commitment, you're feeling love, you're, you're doing all those things together, and that's what makes a thick commitment. But if you take one of those pieces out, the commitment ceases to be quite as thick. So for example, in question two I said, what identity framework most accurately describes your Jewish life now, and what framework would you like to describe your Jewish life moving forward? Anyone want to volunteer an answer to that? It's very personal. Are you an emotional Jew, or are you a doing Jew, or are you a thinking Jew? And if you're one of those more than the other, what would you like to open up in the year ahead? Yeah, please. Well, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're going to get there. But I'm saying where you are now versus where you want to be, or where you'd like to add. A dimension to your Judaism. Action. action. Where are you now? Action. You're in action. So, what would you like to add out of the two others? What do you think? You know, you, if you, this would make it more balanced and robust. But in terms of feeling or thinking, you want to feel more. You want to think more. Some people think too much. So it's interesting. Um, I've done this with, um, with a lot of day school students who some of them are orthodox. I can say a lot of them, I've done it with some. And it's interesting that this equation is not easier for them because they're all about doing. And sometimes there's not thinking and sometimes there's not feeling. 
So people say to me, Erica, I don't understand. Your kids are going 12 years of Jewish school, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of tuition, and then they go to college, and in six months, they don't care about anything. I said, I don't think it's hard to understand. We raised behavioral Jews, and then we thought that they'd be thinking and emotional Jews too. You gotta have the full picture. You can't just be one. You gotta be all of these things in some living, vibrant mesh. Someone else has something to say here. Someone's afraid. All right. So I want to do one more thing with you uh, tonight, and then we'll open up for questions. Actually, when you think about words, a word that sums up your Judaism, and if you have that pen, just take 10 seconds to write it, just from the gut. And if you don't have a pen, just think about it. A word that sums up your Judaism. OK. I need volunteers to shout it out. Yeah. Active. What? Neshama. I have a Kia Soul, and the license plate is Neshama. Yeah. Belonging. What? Transformative. What? Mensch. Tzedakah. Comforting. Yeah, John? Connection. Okay. So all of us have, Rabbi, what's your word? You didn't think I was going to let you go. Word that sums up Judaism. We're all looking at you. Discomfort. Discomfort. <laughs> By the way, I'm a huge believer in discomfort. As an adult educator, comfortable people just don't grow. You have to be uncomfortable to grow. And that's a good thing. I'm going to give you a chance to say another word, should you want to. Or we can be back at you. Productive discomfort, okay. I don't want to point out that that's two words. You probably hyphenated it. That's the way rabbis work. Okay. <laughs> so what I want you to do now is I want you to tell me why you're Jewish. I want you to imagine that someone says to you, Grandpa, Mom, Friend, Rabbi, why are you Jewish? I don't want to give a whole long spiel. I want you to give the elevator speech. And I want you to think about, for yourself, about what you do, what you think, and what you feel, because the hand, heart, and head all have to come together, I think, to make a compelling case for a thick Jewish identity. So I'm just going to give you a minute. And I want you to write, I gave you the sentence, I am Jewish because, unless you want to change that format, but I want it to be personal. So I'm going to give you one minute to tell you why you're Jewish. I am Jewish because. Okay. Who wants to share with me? Please, Andy. That's very nice that you're volunteering to go first. I'm Jewish because it demands goodness. Oh. I am Jewish because it demands goodness of me. Beautiful that idea of commandedness to be to be good. Thank you. Yes. I am Jewish because I'm connected to the past and I will shape the future. Okay. So we've got a little continuum there, a historical continuum, and a kind of
kind of wink to the future. I know that you had one back here. Uh, yeah, please. <laughs> Structure to my belief. I'm Jewish because Judaism gives structure to my beliefs and actions. Someone else, yeah. I'm Jewish because I am. I'm Jewish because I am. Now I could press you on that a little. I'm not going to, but maybe later. Um, because if someone was asking you this question, that might not be enough for them to understand what you mean. I think I understand. Someone else. Yeah. Wait, because Judaism, say that. Okay, so Judaism requires that we care and think about the world in which we live. Beautiful universal message. Yes, sir. Our first male contributor to this. Yeah. I'm, Judy, I'm Jewish because Judaism gives me life. I'm Chaim. Yes, sir. I'm Jewish because this is a community that I feel most comfortable in and the people have the most in common. Okay, so I feel most comfortable and I feel a commonality with others in the community. Yes, please. Uh, it makes me feel like I'm part of a river. It makes you feel like you're part of a river. The Salt River? <laughs> Wait, tell me, tell me a little bit about that. A large movement and a flow. Yeah, large movement and a flow. Inner tubing on the Jewish river. I love that image. Um, actually, I want to say something that's very profound, a book that has had an enormous influence on me. Um, rabbi uh, Abraham Isaac Hakalin Cook, who was the first chief rabbi of Palestine, died in 1935. And he wrote a book called Oroh HaTshuvah, The Lights of Repentance. And I pretty much read it every year at this, uh, this time of the year given to me by a very close and beloved friend. And he talks about repentance as a river. And he says, you know, when you, the river that you look at backwards, because sometimes you're experiencing events and they seem to be taking one course and then they veer off to another course. You don't always understand the direction. But when you stand and reflect going back, you understand the course of the river and the tributaries and why they had to happen and how they happened. So that image of flow is actually quite mystical and important. Someone else? Yes, please. I'm Jewish because I was chosen. I'm Jewish because I was chosen. And I have to live up to. And I have to live up to the mandate of chosenness. And hopefully be part of the greater Okay, being part of a near tamid. Beautiful image, right? The image of a of a light that continues, right? An eternal light that never gets extinguished. Let's take one more. Yes, all the men are coming out. You see, just took one. Thank you. Jewish land, the Jewish language, 
and, and wisdom animates animates his life. Now you know what? I only gave you a minute to do this, which is totally an act of cruelty and unfairness and justice. But I knew that we hear all these different pearls, which we did, from different perspectives about what Judaism means to you. And no one has asked, for most of us, no one's ever asked us to give the elevator speech. But there are settings in which this can be very effective. I work across the United States with a lot of very thin Jews. Now, no one wants to be a thick Jew. Everyone's trying to be thinner, in one sense. But I see that the deep content and wisdom of Jewish scholarship, of Jewish values, is being reduced to a few cliches. You know the, the term tikkun olam? So I'm getting a little tired of it, not because I don't believe in its meaning, but because I think it's becoming a catchphrase for anything that's Jewish. In fact, I want to share with you, we had a shlicha, a representative in Israel working in our foundation, uh, in the Federation, and uh, her kid, she put her kid in a Jewish school, Israeli, he comes home and says, Ima, tikkun olam bivrit? How do you say tikkun olam in Hebrew? He had never, he had never heard this term in Israel. Because there's got to be more. There's got to be more than an empty from generation to generation. I could finish so many speeches that I hear. So, at so many dinners, we're saying the same thing. And I'm thinking, you are one click away from an original Jewish text, from Sepharia, which has thousands of Jewish texts, you can say something original and meaningful because people are hungry for meaning. And we have it. And we're not sharing it. And we're not telling it. And our job really is to become thicker juice, is to become deeper in the wisdom. That's really what Ella is about. For a lot of people, they think tshuva, I'm going to think of one sin that I did. I gossiped about this one. I wasn't fair in my business dealings with this one. Maybe I'll apologize. Maybe I'll just apologize in my head. I'm going to go through the, the machzor. I'm going to beat my chest really quickly. I'm going to do it a little louder than my neighbors so people should know that I mean it more. <laughs> but when I'm talking about tshuva, the return to the self that the rabbi talked about before, I'm talking about something that's much more wholesale, that encompasses every aspect of who I am. This Elul, this Tishrei, think about your Jewish identity. If it's a little thinner than it needs to be, so think about something you want to take it on to make it more vibrant. And don't do something that's just what you've always done, which is you went to a class and you went to another class. Maybe emotionally you're not as attached. I mean, we need to expand that. Maybe you're not doing something, and you could add a little bit. But don't only think about yourself. We need to give the YB Jewish speech. We need to write it for ourselves, and we need to give it. If you care about the future of Judaism, and I'm not talking about in America. I'm talking about Judaism as is in its eternity, the narrative of Judaism. You need to give this speech to people. You need to tell your children. You need to tell your grandchildren. Does it sound a little awkward? Get over it. You need to write it in your ethical will. You need to explain to someone what this means to you. I've tried to explain to you a little bit of what it means to me. It was the very foundation of my new life. 
And it was the most beautiful, I continued to do the most beautiful thing that I had. It's the framework for the way I raised my family. This was given to me as a gift because I was that thin Jew who knew very little. And someone said, Erica, come along. Come along this journey. So I'm inviting you to invite others on this journey. This is the single most important thing we have to do in American Jewry right now, is we need to pick an identity for all the people whose identity is very thin. And I'd like to thank you for taking part in that responsibility with me. All right, I, I mean, we're friends here. Okay, so uh, until this mic is working, we'll try to do a little Q&A um, with loud voices. And, uh, I will this is a very participatory audience. I love them. So um, maybe, I'll take, maybe I'll take the first question, which the, the main top three challenges I see with young Jews, let's say early to mid-20s, is that they believe having a thick Jewish identity is contradictory and is validating a universalist. Mm -hmm. If I'm thinker of a Jew, then I, am, uh, I can't be as connected. Uh, with others or as compassionate on a universalistic scale, how would you guide someone with that type of thinking in their 20s who feels that becoming more Jewish means becoming less connected universalistically? Okay, so it's a great question. We did not, we did not plan this. Um, for those who are thinking about this, there's two things I want to share with you. One of them is invite you to read, and it's available online, Isaac Basheva Singer's speech when he received the Nobel Prize in Literature. It's a fantastic speech. It's very, very moving. And what he says is he's describing a very specific type of Jewish, small Jewish world so that he can extract from it universal wisdoms. I read a lot of Indian literature in English, and I'm not threatened by all the details of place and name and, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and approach and thinking. I feel that someone is helping me, inviting me into an immersive world which has universal truths, but they come out of a very specific place. So because you still have your hands out, I didn't get to the source, but now I can't help myself. Uh, I want you to read something with me by Natan Sharansky. who's a very important figure also for me in, uh, as an influence. He wrote a marvelous book, it's on page three. He wrote a marvelous book called Defending Identity. So if you're interested in identity studies, it's a good place to um, it's a good place to start. In fact, he says, one of the great, not even struggles, but one of the great losses in American democracy is that when people have the opportunity to have a thick particularistic identity because democracy gives them that, they reject it in favor of melding into others. Right? Which is the story, really, of American assimilation, American Jewish assimilation. So this is what Sharansky says, and I hope, Rabbi, this is a good answer to your question, but it's one of the best answers that I've seen. I discovered that only by embracing who I am, by going back to the shtetl, by connecting to my own people, by building my own particular identity, could I also stand with others. Far from negating freedom, far from negating freedom identity gave me both inner freedom and the strength to help others. When Jews abandon identity in the pursuit of universal freedom, they end up with neither. 
Yet when they embrace identity in the name of freedom, as Soviet Jews did in the 1970s, they end up securing both. When freedom and identity are separated, both are weakened. We help others best when we are, have a strong foundation ourselves. Another question. They got quiet all of a sudden. Yes, please. You think it's only about that? I just want to just clarify. Because I have kids and, you know, it's usually not one thing. So I, I'm, uh, I'm with you in this. Um, I, I wrote a book on peoplehood. I've given a lot of thought to peoplehood. Um, so I wanted to share with you, my husband for many years was in clinical practice, an emergency physician. He wore a yarmulke in the emergency room. And every once in a while, there'd be someone in the waiting room who would say, Shalom, doctor. And they were not saying shalom because they wanted to go to Kiddush with you. They were basically saying, I need to be in the front of the line, doctor. That is what we need. Um, so I understand that deep impulse, that solidarity, and I think it's a beautiful thing. By the way, when people are members of, I mean, I work on campus. Someone's a member of fraternity and a sorority, they're wearing the same jacket, they're wearing some ribbon. They're happy to see each other in an airport. Why should we think less? Why should we not? You know, why should we be embarrassed by that? Um, and I, I, you know, I think something else is going on, and, I, and I, it's the downside of peoplehood, and I'm just going to name it. Um, and that is, there are a lot of, while we join with Jews, like I'm the first person to tell you, all right, how many Jews have Nobel Prizes, in what fields and what countries are they from? Um, that's what we have to memorize. Uh, but you know, it was the pride that we have when Jews win a, you know, a, an Olympic medal, when, when, we, when we're traded on the NASDAQ, when we have startup nation, when we, when we go to a country that suffered a terrible natural disaster and the Israelis are the first on the ground. We're proud of that. But there's a, and, we, and we relate to that, like that's my brother, that's my sister, we're a people, we all did this. But there's a downside to this, and that is when you find there's a Bernie Madoff on the front page of the paper. And I think in many ways, our millennials are coming up the path and saying, there are too many affluent Jews in too much trouble. And honestly, when I open the paper, I'm thinking, please don't be a Goldberg, please don't be a this, please don't be a Goldstein. I just, I just don't want to, I want to tell you, I wrote a book about scandal. It was after the Bernie Madoff, it was long time, after the Bernie Madoff scandal, um, for six months, all people wanted to talk about in all of my classes was this, especially nonprofit professionals who felt that now no one trusted them, right? We at our federation lost a, a considerable amount of money in our endowment. It was a wreck. And so I called the publisher. I had just written a book on boredom, spiritual boredom, and I called the publisher and I said, Stuart, I don't know if anyone's writing a book on scandal, but someone has to, of your authors, someone has to do it. They said, no one's doing it. I said, well, then I'll do it. And I didn't want to do it. I wrote a book on death, and it was a lot easier than writing a book on Jewish scandal for me. And uh, I want to tell you the history of this book, what happened that was very interesting. So um, I volunteered to do this, and he said to me, Erica, no one's going to buy this book. 
because by the time you finish writing it and we publish it and print it and distribute it, it's going to be over. It's going to be over. So I thought to myself, how am I? It should be over. That would be terrific. One month later in July, I don't know how many of you know, there was a, a sting operation in New Jersey. It was awful. There was organ selling, it was Sparta, it was Ashkenazim, it really brought all Jews together, it was terrible. Um, and it was on the front page of the paper. And, uh, and I called Stuart. I said, Stuart, did you see the front page of the New York Times? He said, Erica, go write the book. <laughs> so I spent the next year writing this book. And it's very hard for me, it's very unpleasant. In fact, while I was writing it, towards the end, there was a book that came out by, Saint, by two Star Ledger journalists for St. Martin's Press about this sting operation that happened. And he called, I don't know how he got my name, he heard I was working on this, and he said, Erica, have you seen the transcriptions, the FBI transcriptions of the money laundering? And I said, no. He said, let me send you something that's a public document. He said, I just want to tell you, because you might not realize that there's a lot of code language. Every time there's money laundering, they'll say, we're going to the mikvah. And he said, do you watch The Sopranos? And I said, and I'm not a big television watcher. He said, well, when you launder $1,000, it's, I think, a box of ziti or something like that. He said, when you launder $1,000 in this transcript, you'll know because it, it talks about a tractate of Talmud. A tractate of Talmud. When I finished this book, I took off of work and unpaid, I went to 19 cities to talk about this problem. And five people showed up at a talk, and six people showed up at a talk, and people said, I'm really glad that you're taking care of this. I tried to speak to rabbis who said, you know, I really can't speak it from, about this in my pulpit because I've got some donors who are in trouble. That eight cents, that was from my book, Confronting Scandal. I've written a book on the three weeks, which, let me tell you, is not well observed in the Jewish community, that sold more than double the number of copies of that book. And I understand why this is. Because we don't want to deal with the, the um, we don't want to deal with the ethical dilemma, the ethical morass that we're in. We don't want to confront all the problems that affluence is causing us. And yet, our children are saying, I'm not sure that we want to be part of this. Right? We answered a higher authority. How many of you grew up with that commercial? Right? I remember that commercial, I, I, it's, it just lodges in my brain. And now you say, could we put on that commercial today? We answered a higher authority. If we can't do that, then we're betraying our tradition. So I think on some level, while I, I disagree with your children, and they're welcome to call me, um, and I'm going to defend you, because all moms stick together. But I, I do think that we have an issue that is real and live, and it's our generation's problem. And we've got to take care of that, because we've got, to, we've got to clean, take out Judaism, clean it up, and hold it up. And sometimes we've got to be pretty transparent and hold it up to the light so we see where the stains are. All right, but let's end on something more happy. Oh, now we got it. Now we're moving. Okay, I'm not sure if this is uh, contrary to try to get a little dialogue, but what I'm worried about is that thickness of identity turns into tribalism yeah. and exclusion. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, um, Rabbi, can you just come up here with the microphone? Oh, I've wanted to do this the whole night. I have to escape the podium. Um, okay. I just want to be a little closer to you guys. 
Um, so this question of tribalism, you know, when I was, when I was working on thickness of identity, tribalism, we didn't use that word much out of academic studies, right? Now, it's become a real thing. Um, and it's very hard to say, be more committed, be, be deeper, be more earnest, be more sincere, and not get into the MOT, members of the tribe, who are you, I'm, you know, you're in, this one's out, um, and I don't know how to fix that. I can only say that unless we start separating religion from politics, language that politically is very abrasive and very destructive makes its way into religion, which has its own huge exclusivities, and it's a dangerous cocktail. That's why good people have to make these good people have to have these conversations and make the case. So if you're making the case for why I'm Jewish, I shouldn't be saying this is why I'm Jewish, and you need to be Jewish necessarily, right? Or you need to give up what you're doing because you're wrong, right? Whenever I hear someone say you're wrong, I, 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 there's like a part of my soul that just, that just dies. It's how do we have such certainty? For me, Judaism has never been about certainty. You know, in many ways, I'm a, not, not a direct student, but my teachers uh, in Frisch were all students of Rav Salvechik, as were many of my students in, uh, many of my teachers in Yeshiva University, naturally. And Rabbi Salvechik writes that Judaism is not a panacea. It's no one's sugar pill. That the moment you enter the world of Jewish tradition, your life becomes complex, and that's where the questions start. Because we have a very intellectual tradition. And I have friends who are from other faiths which don't have an intellectual tradition. They actually tell you, this is the interpretation you need to teach, which is so striking to me. We believe in Shibim Panim Torah, 70 interpretations of the Torah. All of us in some way have a voice when it comes to the Torah. I've seen beautiful uh, and heard about beautiful ceremonies where a rabbi had the entire congregation roll out a Torah and hold it and everybody was invited to comment. That's not a simple Judaism. That's not a tribal Judaism. That's a much more intellectual and thoughtful Judaism. And I don't, I don't know how we grow it, other than to say that it wasn't always this way. And because it wasn't always this way, and because we know that identity is fluid, I hope we can go back. Not go back, because we can't go back, but I hope we can go forward and counterbalance this kind of tribalism. I don't know if that's an answer, because honestly, I don't know if there is an answer. Right? I, I mean, I have to be truthful. Right? I'm, not, I'm not coming with a position of certainty. I'm saying to you, I see the problem as you do. But I see what's happening in the opposite direction, which is what the rabbi spoke about, is that a lot of young people today go to the opposite extreme. Right? They don't want to have Jewish friends. They don't want to associate with Judaism. In fact, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to do this in your handout, but one of the sources that I brought in the handout was from the book of Bamimbar, the book of Numbers. And it's very striking. In, uh, in the incident of the spies, when we're afraid to go into Israel, um, there's a moment where we say, we are, they are giants and we are grasshoppers. And they think we're grasshoppers. Remember this scene? So we think we're grasshoppers and they think we're grasshoppers. Now you can tell someone what you feel, what you think you are, but you can't make that judgment from someone else. And what happens in only less than 10 chapters later is that the king of Moab is terrified of the Jews because they're like ox, the oxen that lick up the grass. So we think we're grasshoppers, and someone from the outside says, no, you're oxen. 
One of my students said this to me probably 15 years ago. I never forgot it. Tamar, I never, I always credit her because it's such a beautiful interpretation. And look at our self-perception. Sometimes we feel, oh, we're Jews, we're weak. If you read Barry Weiss this week in the Times, she talked about anti-Semitism. She talked about one of the best ways to fight anti-Semitism is not to assimilate. It's to actually be deeply proud and to, make, and, to, and to go out into the world with a beautiful Judaism that is about social justice, that is about love, that is about unity, that is about bringing people together, that is about study. So that's what I'm aiming for. And that's what, uh, uh, if I, I'm not a, I can't give blessings because I'm, I'm not wise enough to give blessings, but I just do want to bless all of you with a beautiful year ahead, a year of meaning, a year of connection, a year with the capacity to be vulnerable and open, um, a year of study, a year of deep emotional connection to your families, health, health, and health. Yeah, sure. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.